Hello and welcome back to the God Story Podcast. I'm Brent Siddle and this time we're back with Dr. Alistair Roberts of the Theopolis Institute in the States as we continue looking at the mighty book of Revelation. Last time chapter 18, this time Alistair chapter 19. Hello and welcome to the show. Thank you. Now, how does Revelation 19 concern itself with the destruction of the rest of God's enemies? We've seen Babylon, uh, Jerusalem judged and destroyed. So who or what is up next, if I can put it like that? We could also see the figures that are involved beyond the land beast or the um, woman of the harlot city as the beast and the dragon. They're also involved, as we saw in chapters 12 and 13. And so there's going to be a broader judgment that's taking place and also a broader exaltation. Are people removed from heaven and there are um, persons brought up to heaven? So as the um, dragon and his angels are brought down, so the righteous are brought up. This is going to be described in the form of a wedding. We might also relate this to the preceding chapter where there are a series of lamentations over the fallen city. This is rejoicing over the fallen city. And so if we had alas, alas, here we have hallelujah. There is the shift in tone to as there's a reversal and the parties that were brought low in the preceding chapter are now followed by parties that are raised up and vindicated. Always reminds me a bit of the Hallelujah Chorus from uh, Messiah. Now, where does chapter 19, in fact, I think it's what inspired it, isn't it? Where does chapter 19 fit into the structure of the book of Revelation as a whole, Alistair? It is really bringing an end to the great sequence of the destruction of the city. can think back also to the ways that the messages of the three angels um, described in the middle of chapter 14 play out in advance some of the beats that will be heard later. So there are fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. And the second angel, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all the nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And then third angel, if anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead and on his hand, he will also drink the wine of God's wrath, poured out full strength, etc. And then the torment of the beast and um, the, the ones who worship. And then finally, the blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. All of this is in advance telling us what's going to happen at the very end. And so we've already seen the falling of Babylon the Great. We're seeing here the way in which the um, beast and those who worship the beast are being brought low. And we also um, see the outplaying of the judgment upon the, the harlot and then the raising up of the righteous. Yes. Who or what does John hear and see in this chapter? So there is another um, vision of a sort of throne room worship scene. We saw the throne room back in chapters four and five, for instance, and at various other points, we've been brought up to see this perspective, not just looking down upon the events of the earth, but the perspective of heaven itself and what's going on in heaven, the rejoicing in heaven, silence in heaven in certain th points, things being opened up in heaven. And here there's uh, an event of worship, the 24 elders, the great multitude, 
figures that we've encountered earlier. And of course, the throne at the center, the voice from the throne that we hear in verse five. So that throne setting, uh, the throne setting that we've seen in chapters four and five particularly, is the setting for this chapter. Yes, oh, there's so much uh, in here. So, and so incredibly rich. How does the vision of Jesus in chapter 19 compare in contrast with the vision of Jesus that we saw right at the start of the book in chapter one? There are certainly a number of similarities. If you can think about the way that um, his eyes like a flame of fire, his head many diadems, the way that a sharp sword comes from his mouth, all these other descriptions, they remind us of the the sort of wasif, the description from head to toe or toe to head um, that is given to us in the vision of chapter one. Uh, if we go back to that, we can see several points of a group of connection. Uh, so it's very clearly the same figure that's described in chapter one. Clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest, the hairs of his head were white like white wool like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. This is the same figure, we can also connect it with the the horses that were sent out earlier. This is the rider on the white horse. And so there are a number of points with preceding images and visions. Okay, uh, who are the multitude in heaven mentioned there in, uh, in verse 1? I would say that they are most likely um, connected with the multitude that we saw in chapters 14 and 15, the thought of the harvest of the earth, the uh, 144,000, and then the greater multitude that surrounds. This is the multitude of the redeemed, both of Israel and of the nations. Uh, now, why is this heavenly song divided into five sections, stretching to verse 8? And is there any significance to the number five in the book of Revelation? Five can be connected with military themes. Five is, of course, the number of the hand. You have five digits on each hand. And so when we think about military might, often military units are divided into fives. So maybe that's um, some element. But it's if it is, it's not as prominent as some of the other things that are going on here. Uh, OK, the praise songs. What are the praise songs about? The praise songs are about the destruction of the harlot city, among other things, the redemption of the saints. They've been vindicated. And the fact that there is the judgment upon the city is a vindication. It's not just removing some bad party from the scene. There is a statement of the Lord of ju his justice that is enduring. And so the smoke of the city continuing to rise is part of what it, the Lord is being praised for. It's a sign that there is a final and definitive statement of God's justice that has brought low his enemies and raised up his persecuted saints, vindicating them and bringing them into his presence. Now, we better deal with the four cherubim and the 24 elders. We don't hear of them after this, do we, the four cherubim and the 24 elders? What happens to them? Well, we can speculate, but it seems that the role in heaven 
that we see in the roles in heaven that we see in chapter four and five are increasingly taken by the ascended saints and by the bride. This is a transformation of the heavenly reality. And this is one of the things that people often miss, that there has been a revolution in heaven as a result of the events of Christ's death, resurrection, ascension, and the events of Pentecost and the judgment upon um, Jerusalem in AD 70. There is a new covenant order, and part of that new covenant order, actually at the heart of the new covenant order, is the fact that Christ is uh, as one who has come in human flesh. He's in that human flesh, in the heavenly throne room, and around him are gathered faithful saints who have been vindicated and raised up. And so the movement from Old to New Testament in its vision of the future needs to be understood in this regard, that the Old Testament has a very pessimistic view of what happens after death. That is not the case in Paul's discussion in Philippians, for instance, chapter chapter one, or what we see here. It's a very positive and optimistic view because we've been raised up with Christ. Heaven is opened in a way that it was not before. And so whereas previously people would go to the grave, a realm of greater detachment from life and fellowship with God, here we have uh, the encouragement that we go up to be with Christ, to rule with him. And there is an exaltation, an elevation that was not formally the case. Why, I wonder, is the voice of the multitude in verse 6 there described as being like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder? This, these are um, images we've seen before, aren't they? Yes, it's language that we maybe connect with great theophanies. We might think of the events of Sinai in Exodus chapter 19. But there's also language here that makes us think of the way that um, Christ is described at certain points. The voice of God is described, the roar of many waters, or the so sound of, of mighty peals of thunder. Um, this is maybe supposed to be seen as the voice connected with the multitude, but also a voice connected with God. And maybe we should hold those two things together. It begs the question, should Christian praise be loud? I think it should be loud. And uh, and I think, I mean, there are times for a more subdued lamentation, for instance, but much of our worship should be um, glorious. It should be um, roaring. It should be, there should be a triumphal character to it. It should be um, something that's solemn, but glorious mm. and majestic, something royal. Yes, such as Handel provided in Messiah, I would I would hazard a guess, but there will be people saying no, 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 no. Anyway, yeah. now um, this <laughs> just shows my taste in music. Probably, <laughs> why is this praise linked to a wedding? The wedding themes have already been with us for the whole book in various ways, but they've been more muted. We can think at the very beginning the description of Christ in the white garments, walking among the candlesticks. He's like a bridegroom in the garden. And then we have the description of him in a way that's like the wasps of the Song of Songs, descriptions from head to toe or toe to head. We can think also of the way that certain ways of expression recall the book of the song. Things like stand at the door and knock, and if anyone opens, and the need to get clothed. This is something that calls back to the book of the song. Now, this here is 
the description of a sort of bridal assembly, a great company that is gathering together for a wedding, preparing for a wedding. We've earlier seen the virgins that follow Christ, a sort of army of virgins. There is military metaphor there, but there's also bridal metaphor. And there are the two things brought together here as well, the conquering bridegroom and the bridal army that surrounds. And it's all leading up to the marriage supper of the Lamb, a feast that's about to be eaten. There will be food thrown beneath the table, as it were, for the birds and the beasts, the food of the destroyed enemies. And then there will be this great marriage supper that's enjoyed by the righteous. Yes, fabulous. What's the significance of the fact that this is Jesus' wedding, though? This, I think, is a great theme within the Johannine literature. Christ is the bridegroom. And behind so much of his writing is this underlying root metaphor for understanding salvation. Christ is the one who comes as the bridegroom for his bride. He redeems his bride from all of her sins. He brings his bride to himself, and the two are joined together. Think back through the book of John and the way that Jesus begins his ministry at a wedding feast. Here he is going to culminate it at a wedding feast. There is the description of Jesus as the bridegroom, by John the Baptist, who describes himself as the friend of the bridegroom. We have wedding themes in things like the, the nuptial um, themes of the meeting with the woman at the well. These uh, This recalls places like Genesis 24 or the description in Genesis 29 or Exodus chapter 2, where um, figures such as Rebecca and Rachel and Zipporah are all met at wells. Then go further on and you have the woman washing Jesus' feet, anointing Jesus' feet, and the scent of her nard filling the house. That's taking language from the book of songs, uh, Song of Songs, chapter one. While the king was on his couch, my nard gave forth its fragrance. And go further on in the book, and you have the meeting with the woman at the well, uh, the meeting with the woman in the garden. Or even before that, you have the woman who's desperately searching for her bridegroom and can't find him anywhere. And you have descriptions of the way that Jesus is laid in a scented garden chamber, a chamber within a garden, and it's filled with these glorious spices, like a royal and bedchamber. And it's also a place that is a place from which symbolically this wind is going to bring forth the scented breeze and also there's going to be an outflow of living water. This is all picked up again in the book of Revelation. Jesus is the bridegroom. He's come for his people. The story of Revelation is the story that's leading up to a, a wedding. The bride um, is going to be formed of those who have been taken out of the city of the unfaithful harlot. So we have maybe something similar to the story of Rahab. The Rahab married the chief, uh, the chief son of the Judahites. Jesus is the true lion of Judah, and he has come to take a new Rahab for himself. And so as we go through the book, it's very clear that there are these nuptial themes and that at the end, they come to a climactic expression in the wedding feast, and then finally with the revelation of the bride in the chapters that follow. Yes. What's John's response to all of this in verse 10? John's response is 
I mean, he's he's absolutely blown away. Stunned. I would have thought and yeah. <laughs> it, this is amazing, and so he's um, awestruck and he bows down to the angel and is rebuked for doing so. He should not bow down because the angel is, in fact, um, a servant as he is. Does um, does Revelation nineteen depict a premillennial advent of Jesus? Um. I mean, there is a pre-millennial advent of Jesus, if we think about it in terms of the millennium beginning with the destruction of Jerusalem. The destruction of Jerusalem is a coming of Jesus. It's the way that it's described. And so if the millennium comes after that, then it is a pre-millennial advent in that sense. Uh, how was Jesus described here in verses 11 to 16? The description of him is again drawing back to um, chapter 1 and the description that we have in the great vision. You might also think back to Daniel and the way that the description of the figure in the final vision is very similar. Now, he's here riding a white horse. He has a name written that no one else can read, no one knows but himself. He's called the word of God. This is noteworthy. John, of course, uses that language and explores that motif for Jesus' ministry in John chapter 1 and the opening um, prologue of his gospel. Here again, that language comes up. This is a title. He is the word of the Lord made flesh. God has spoken at many different times in many different ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us in his son and the way that christ is described here is highlighting the fact that of many messengers he is the messenger and he's the one who is bringing the great message here the one who's announcing the the full consummation of god's purpose he's the one who's going to rule with the rod of iron this is the language that we have in um psalm 2 for instance um the way that the he will rule with a rod of iron and crush with a, like a potter's vessel. Or we might think of the um, ruling with the rod of his mouth in Isaiah chapter 11. We might think also of the garments dipped in blood, um, Isaiah chapter 63, and the way that the servant who takes, or the Lord who takes the, the vindication of his people upon himself acts and he has garments spattered with blood. Yes. Now, who or what are the army that follows the rider? The army is a heavenly army that is also a bridal assembly or procession. This is bringing together the imagery that we might have of a glorious, terrifying um, host, but also the dazzling splendor of a, a, a bridal procession, a royal bridal procession. Um, we can think about the way that the bride is described as terrifying as an army with awesome as an army with banners. And um, this is that sort of army. Uh, we may have already dealt with it. Why does Jesus have a sword in his mouth? I mean, he's described as the word of God, isn't he? As you said. Yep. This is also language that we had in chapter one, of course, in the vision there. Um, Christ had a sharp two-edged sword coming out of his mouth. He rules by means of his word principally. And so the authority of his word is represented in this sword. And he's also coming to conquer. He's coming to judge. His word is going to be effective in defeating all of his foes. 
And so that word is represented with this sword. It's a sword by which he is fighting. He's not just speaking comfort and peace. He's going to um, conquer and defeat his foes. Yes. Now, uh, what does a reference to the wine press refer back to, I wonder? The wine press, it would seem to me, would be, again, Isaiah chapter 63, the way that the garments of the one coming up from Bosra are like those who has trod who of one who has trodden the wine press. We might also think of the very end of chapter 14 with the wine press that is trodden outside of the city and the blood that flows from it. Uh, I've asked you this question before and I shall ask it again. Um, in what sense is Jesus our greater Dionysus? <laughs> he is the one who brings the true wine. He's the one who brings joy and um, delight. He's the one who brings the Sabbath relaxation. This is the end of all working. This is the final great, this is the battle after which comes the rest. And so he's the one who brings the celebration. He starts his ministry by bringing wine, by giving wine at a wedding feast. And he ends his ministry, in he ends this glorious victory by bringing wine as well. And there is a sort of symmetry to the bookends of his his work. Yes, indeed. Now, what battle is this chapter referring to, I wonder? I would see this as um, referring to the defeat of um, the, the old covenant system as it has been corrupted and overtaken the way that it's become um, used by the dragon and the, the harlot and the beast. Now, this defeat is, of course, anticipatory of the greater victory that we'll see in the future. And we'll read a bit more about those things later on. And it seems to me that this is the great, a great day of the, the Lord. And so the victory being referred to here is that climactic victory in history, but also anticipating the full outworking of that victory, as we'll see it in the future. Okay, uh, what's the significance of the call to the birds in verse 17? Yes, the call to the birds is, this is a judgment that might help cause us to recall the description of the eagles gathering together in Jesus' teaching in the Olivet Discourse. The eagles gathering together to pick clean the bones of the unfaithful. This is the place where the great harlot has been destroyed and all the people with her, the merchants, the kings of the earth, and the sailors and all the... There is this gathering of carrion birds that are going to destroy it. We can think about the way that this picks up language that we find elsewhere in scripture as well. The sort of language that we have in, I think it's Ezekiel 39, uses this sort of imagery, the carrion birds called from various parts. If I recall... Speak to the birds of every sort and all the beasts of the field. Assemble and come. Gather from all around the sacrificial feast that I'm preparing for you. A great sacrificial feast on the mountains of Israel. And you shall eat flesh and drink blood. You shall eat the flesh of the mighty and drink the blood of the princes of the earth, of rams, of lambs, and of he-goats, of bulls, all, all of them fat beasts, beasts of Bashan. And you shall eat fat till you are filled and drink blood till you are drunk and the sacrificial feast that I'm preparing for you. And you shall be filled at my table with horses and charioteers, with mighty men and all kinds of warriors, declares the Lord God. 
Now that is at the end of the Battle of Gog and Magog. Um, this is again a climactic battle followed by the judgment of being picked clean by the carrion birds. Now the beast and the false prophets, yes, now they're thrown into the lake of fire, the beast and the false prophet. What's the lake of fire, Alistair? The lake of fire, I think, is referring to final destruction, the destruction that is an enduring destruction as well. It's a testimony to their complete defeat and enduring defeat. It's not just a, a sort of, it's they've just vanished. There's an enduring, the smoke um, going up. There's a sign that they are destroyed, but destroyed in a, a more enduring way. Is the scene then Jesus' victory procession? Could it be described as like a, an imperial Roman victory procession? It certainly is. That's part of it. I think also a, a bridal procession is part of what's going on. Um, it's both of those things. He's dressed in white. He's um, riding a white horse. He's. This is a great. I mean, the the white horse and the white garments. That's not usually what you would wear for a battle. This is the garment of assured. Vi These are the garments of triumph and assured victory. It's the the garments of a bridegroom. It's not the garments that you'd expect if you're going out to fight a battle that could go either way. Uh, final question, Alistair. In what sense is Jesus a greater Cyrus? Yes, uh, we can certainly see the New Testament using the example of Cyrus to help us to understand who Christ is. If we think back to the way that the final verse of the Old Testament describes the decree of Cyrus in the Old Testament canonical order that's often used, ending with Second Chronicles. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may the Lord, his God, be with him. Let him go up. It's the great commission of the Old Testament. And so the language that is used at the very end of the chapter, final chapter of Matthew, Matthew chapter 28, verses 28 to 30, I think it is. And that's the language that we have being used in very similar in the very end of chapter 36 of Second Chronicles. Jesus is like Cyrus. He is the emperor of all the kings and nations of the world. He is the one who's been given all authority. He has been brought up to the throne room itself. He is seated and authoritative. He will rule with a rod of iron. He is governing with the rod of his mouth. He, um, Out of his mouth comes a two-edged sword. He is the one who is going to be victorious in all of his works. Now, in that respect, he is like the new Cyrus. He's also the one that um, opens doors. He's the one who's the Messiah. He's the one who's the anointed. As all of those pieces of language are referred to Cyrus in the Old Testament, in Isaiah and elsewhere. And they're referred to Jesus in the New Testament and also in Revelation. There we go. Chapter 19. Alistair, Dr. Alistair Roberts of the Theopolis Institute in the States. Thank you so much for your time as always. And thanks to our creative team at Liquid Edge who sponsor this podcast and who take care of things behind the scenes. Alistair, bless you. Thank you so much. Thank you. We really hope you've enjoyed this episode of the God Story podcast. If you want to help us make more great episodes like this one, you can head over to our Patreon page and become a God Story podcast supporter. 
you'll receive our undying gratitude, plus a few bonus goodies for your ongoing support. Just visit patreon.com slash godstorypodcast. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash godstorypodcast. As always, you can get in touch with us via our website, godstorypodcast.com.